I had every excuse in the book for why I should be listening to music and comedy and how it helps me and calms me down and blah, 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 and excuse, excuses. And I'm because I'm lazy and because I like what I like and I want to be entertained. But the reality was when I was listening to Tom Hopkins and I walked up to the door, man, my, I was engaged for those listening who work here or where I'm going in the future. When you hear me call you out on making excuses and being less than what you could be, just know that I know because... It's like looking into a mirror. Welcome to the Waste No Day podcast, a podcast specifically for and about the home services industry as it relates to plumbing, heating, air conditioning, and electrical. More than a podcast, Waste No Day is a credo, a determination, a mindset. It is a never-ending discipline. It is a refuse-to-lose pursuit. It is a wake-up call every morning to waste no day. Now here's your hosts, Brian Burton and Nate Minnick. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Waste No Day podcast. Your hosts, Nate and Brian, hanging out with you again. And this time, we are inviting on to the show a very special guest. Very special indeed. Mr. Brian Burton. Oh, nice job, Brian. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Good job uh, on the sound effects. Really, yeah. really nailed it. Look, we got to figure it. We got to get some arrows or something. You know, we got eight buttons sitting here. Yep. We, we don't use any of them ever, almost ever. And um, the, the description in my handwriting that I really can't read anyway is... I never know if it's describing the one above the writing or the one below the writing, so I do that all the time. But here, let's do that again. Mr. Brian Burton. Wow. That was, that was really well-timed. You nailed it. Nailed it. Uh, we're anyway. going to be interviewing you today, man. We're going to hear about your story. It's going to be fantastic. It's about time, if you ask me. Buddy. Really? Really? Finally, a good guest on this show. <laughs> solid, solid guest Did you on just this flex? Show. Did you just do a chest flex right there? Oh, you caught show? that? Yeah, okay. Yeah, you didn't hear it hit the mic? Yeah. There it goes. Okay, gotcha. Too bad it's not a video podcast. Um, <laughs> but no, I'm looking forward to it. We're going to have a great time uh, with you. And because we are interviewing you, we're just going to cut right to the chase here and talk about our quote for the day. What lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Okay, it has to be a poet. I mean, there's oh, a lot of back man. and forth yeah. in there. Yeah, Emerson has so many of my favorite quotes. I think we're going to do like a six-month stretch where I only do Emerson quotes. And the audience just dropped off. But <laughs> <laughs> No, that's good, Brian. And we are looking forward to talking uh, about the things that lie both behind us and in front of us, in front of us today. Yeah, buddy. Yeah. So, uh, like I said, we're, we don't want to stomp all over the interview because we are interviewing you. Uh, so pretty short on the introduction here. Uh, before we jump into the interview, did want to hit our review of the week. And we want to talk about which incredible listener this time, Brian. Best life-changing pod out there. Life-changing, baby. What's up? Five stars. Thank you. Thank you. This is literally the best podcast out there. Did you write this, Nate? Uh, I'm, I may have used a All pseudonym. Right, let me, let me get know. back in character here. This is literally the best podcast out there. I've learned so much from this podcast that I can bring into my life in general and use when I'm servicing a customer. I listen two to three times a week. That's pretty good being there's only one episode a week. <laughs> Love it. 
Sometimes I listen to the same episode over and over again as a refresher. Keep up the great work. Ken from Dream Team in Delco, PA. All right. A little local boy. K Burns 33. Appreciate that. Yeah, appreciate it, K Burns. Ken from Dream Team. Um, we do appreciate these reviews. You know, it's funny. I think we've said this recently on an intro, but there are times, right now being one of them, when life is very, very busy and and may even say chaotic. And we don't feel like we have time to get together for an hour and, and cut an episode, right? That's true. <clears throat> and it really is reading reviews like this where I'm like, you know what? And then talking to some people, you know, I was in Arizona again uh, last week and I had conversations with several uh, awesome guys from the Mr. Sparky in Phoenix. Um I didn't ask them if I could say their names on the air, so I'm not going to, although I, pro I feel like they'd probably like that. Anyway, from uh, Aaron Hagen's Mr. Sparky in Phoenix, Arizona. And you know what was really cool about that place, by the way? Right across the street, George Brazil Plumbing. Right, right, like across from them, Parker and Sons. Oh, all right. <laughs> Dude, it's nice. Like, it's just like legends all over the place. And yeah. like, it's so, it's so our, our trades right there, you know? And I'm like... You know, we're, we work for the competitor or whatever, you know, and it, it is what it is. But, like, but I just get excited, man. I was just driving through with my buddy, Mike, and I'm, I'm like, looking at boom, 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 right? Just, bam, three, you know, legends, legendary names in the industry, like, right there. And I'm, I'm just, like, beating my chest, you know. I love it. I love that the trades are coming up like this. I love that the trades are doing big things. Everybody's in their white press shirts and just look good, you know, and they're, the, the cool thing there too is like sunny all the time and I'm and it's early at seven o'clock in the morning and all I see is like people driving their trucks with apprentices in the passenger seat laughing and having a good time. Like freaking Parker and Sons has a food truck out front. Nice. Like, oh, I'm going there. <laughs> <laughs> they had a food truck out serving uh, breakfast burritos and stuff. And I'm just like, dude, what's up, man? The trades have come a long way, you know? It was a, like a proud, proud papa moment of, uh, you know, just seeing how far the trades have come even since I got involved. And uh, it was so cool to be in that atmosphere in between those three companies where everybody, three different brands, three competitors, you know, real close to each other, I get it. But um, just doing the same thing, trying to get better, trying to have a good, a good day serving clients and, and uh, making money. And I'm, I was just very proud to be on that in that intersection between all that action, it was really cool. And then just came into Aaron's shop and sat down and as their meeting was wrapping up and got to talk to a couple, one seasoned vet and one guy who's only been there for like six weeks and they're just crushing it. You know, this seasoned electrician is doing, he's on track to do 140,000 in revenue this month. And the new guy was, in his second month, I want to say, and is tracking like 85000 for the month. Second month at the company. Wow. And so I, I'm like, well, I want to talk to these guys, and I want to hear if they're doing the right thing, you know? Like, how, how are they doing that? They're freaking awesome. They're big fans of Waste No Dad. I never told them who I am or that I hosted the show, you know? But I think, I don't know if Aaron had mentioned it, but they figured it out pretty fast. 
and said that they listen to the show and I asked what books they read and they named off most of my, like Brian Tracy's psychology is selling and they just named off you know my favorite books and uh, talked about how they serve clients at an, at the utmost highest level and how their money and their income is secondary to them to really, really serving someone and everything they said checked out and I just loved it. And I'm like, man, this is what's up. This is the whole waste no day thing, man. Make more of this and, and less of that angry to wake up and stare at the ceiling tiles in the morning and hate your career and wish you could do, wish you had stayed in school so you could do something real, you know? Um, these guys didn't feel like that. So it was, it was a pleasure to be there. Nice, man. Well, we appreciate the review. And if you appreciate what we're dropping here on the podcast, including today's episode, make sure that you drop us a line, preferably a five-star line, and that you leave a comment for us to let us know what you enjoy about the show or what you would like to hear in the future. For now, though, we're going to put Mr. Brian Burton in your passenger seat. Hit it twice. (laughs) Our guest today is Brian Burton. He is the co-host of the Waste O'Day podcast, as well as the vice president of sales of the Punctual Pros outfit. That's Benjamin Franklin, Mr. Sparky, and One Hour Heating and Air Conditioning in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He has risen through the ranks here, as well as had multiple jobs in previous plumbing locations, including one of Ken Goodrich's shop at Yes Plumbing out in Las Vegas. He is joining the show today as a guest, and we are honored to have him. Welcome to the show, buddy. We're talking to me. We are talking to me. I do a lot of talking to me. <laughs> Nate gives me dirty looks and negative phrases from time to time. Not a whole lot of talking. Yeah, what's going to be great about this podcast is for once you'll actually be paying attention during the interview. <laughs> At least I, I suspect. There may be some blank spaces we have to edit out. But <laughs> Phone's going to be face down on this one, buddy. No, it's not. It's, I, see I said it right going to be. I didn't say it is now. <laughs> I see it At some right there point the before table. the end of this episode, turning that thing face down. Uh, yeah, this is something that we've been talking about doing for a while, but it never really came to fruition. And I thought, why not now? Episode 154. Of course, that makes sense. Is it 154? Yeah. And uh, maybe some things transpiring in the near future here. <laughs> for one, this being the last episode we will do together in this building. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Sad times. Yeah. Ah, exciting times. Well, exciting for me. <laughs> you just have to be here with an empty chair in front of you. Why don't you, why don't you tell a little bit about what you mean there, Brian? I have been called to a challenge, I feel like, and that challenge is to step away from the organization here and move on to hopefully greener pastures in another state. I've been given an opportunity to do something a little bit different at a little bit higher level position than I'm, not, than I'm at now and take on a new task. So that's what I'm going to do. Ooh. Sounds good, man. It's been in the works for a while, and it's just finally coming to pass. Unfortunately, can't share too many details just yet, but on an upcoming episode, I'll be happy to share all of the details. <laughs> we'll hold you to that. But what the people really want to know right now is, will Waste No Day continue? As far as I'm concerned, it will. Nate, how about you, buddy? <laughs> <laughs> I Yes, I have purchased the Waste No Day podcast and all rights to it. And I'm the sole owner How about of the that? Waste No Day podcast. Man. It's not too late to get in, Nate Minnick. Let's open that checkbook, buddy. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, yes, the Waste No Day podcast will continue, as it currently has been for the near future at least, which is me and Nate 
only interviews will happen remotely. I'll be in another state. Nate will be where he's always been in, in his basement. You'll be like where in the world is Brian Burton. Yeah. New game show coming next. Yeah. New part of where the Where I'm going is not probably not a big secret. What I'm doing is just not public knowledge yet. You got to so. keep the people on their edge. They You can't reveal too much. Yeah. On an upcoming episode. Not going to say which one. You just got to listen to all of them. Yes. For exactly. all three of the people listening who care where Brian Burton is or what Brian Burton is. We'll slowly doing. put clues in each episode and drag it out over yeah. 10 weeks. No, they're like, oh, the podcast still happened? Okay, cool. Can we stop talking about this now? <laughs> who cares? Fair enough, Brian. Fair enough. Transitioning on here. One of the reasons that we are doing this is, of course, transitions. And transitions have been a large part of your life. And so we're going to talk today about the Brian Burton story. Yeah. As recently told on a couple other podcasts, but not this one. Not know? this one. We, I drop hints from time to time, and we talk about where I'm from and what I've done before this, but never really dove into my story. This is going to be the best version of Brian Burton's story of any of the podcasts. It will, because Nate knows when I'm just totally talking out of my backside, and he'll be like, <laughs> bro, that's not real. Stop exaggerating. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Why don't we start at the beginning, Brian? Let's talk about your journey, where you grew up, and how you got into the trades. I grew up in the D, baby. That I grew up in Dallas, the three one three, Southwest Detroit. For those of you who know Detroit, I grew up off of well, pretty close to like Verner and Livernois, probably a five minute drive to Tiger Stadium down there, or what's now Comerica Park, Ford Field, where the Tigers and Lions play. Yeah, I grew up in Detroit. Got a twin brother. Kevin Burton, sub bro. Kevin owns Ready Jetter in Michigan. And we grew up to a single mom, Gail. Mom who formerly worked here with us, but recently retired. Congrats on that, mom. Yep, shout out Gail. Yep, Gail Yeah, raised us by herself in a most of the time in a one-bedroom, second-floor apartment in southwest Detroit, Michigan. Mom's a hero, working a lot of the time two jobs, sometimes one job in night school. She was going to a little crap hole school called Sir Metro on Michigan Avenue for HR, I believe, back in the day. Just Kevin, me, home alone. Huh. I feel like there's a movie there somewhere. There was. <laughs> like We saw that movie as, we had to be like, I don't know, 10, 11 years old when yeah. it came out, and we just set up a bunch of booby traps for the <laughs> inevitable burglars that would come through. That's right. You had, we'll call it a challenging childhood. Growing up in a inner city school with not a lot of focus on strong educational backgrounds. It's tough to, I, we didn't know it was challenging until we moved. <laughs> so for us, it was like, it was a good time. There were a lot of times we were scared and a lot of times we wished we had a pops around or a strong big brother or something like that. But all we knew was we were just getting by. We were surviving. We both dropped out of high school. I want to say it was around the 10th grade. I actually don't, I don't remember, but I think it was like late 10th, early 11th grade that I dropped out at least and pursued a plumbing career, was shoved into a plumbing career, however you want to look at it. Okay. So that was something appointed to you. Plumbing was, yeah, it's a multi-generational, it's in the family. Was that like Gail saying, Brian, if you're not going to be in school, you're not going to be in my house. So here's a plumbing job or how did that work out? Nope, didn't actually live with mom anymore at that point. Lived with my grandmother down in Southwest, and we were hanging out with crowds she didn't want us, or I in particular was hanging out with a crowd she didn't really care for, so it was no longer an option to 
stay in school and hang out with gangbangers. It was like, okay, that's what you're going to do. You're getting to work. I think I actually got arrested, and she came and got me and said, you're going to work after school from now on. I had uncles picking us up to take us plumbing. And then it just became like this school thing's a waste of time. What's a diploma going to do for me that I can't do myself? And I wasn't getting good grades. I was a smart kid, but a horrible student. That's how I felt all the time about school. So I just didn't see a reason to be there anymore. There was a lot of skipping and just missing class and smoking weed or whatever. So we abandoned ship on the school thing and went to work plumbing full time. Went to work with Uncle Scott, Uncle Tom. Uncle Scott, rest in peace. Uncle Tom and Uncle Tom, who was really took me under his wing and taught me everything about plumbing that I learned up to that point. And this was residential or commercial or new construction? So I dabbled a little in all of them. Really started out doing at S&W plumbing, doing new construction, which just being left on job sites. And, ugh, hated it. Doing undergrounds and stuff and some finished work, a little bit of rough in, just drilling. It's just all I can remember is carrying buckets of gravel and drilling holes and getting tossed off seven foot ladders from the right angle <laughs> drill, hitting a knot in the wood or a nail. So it was a lot of that. And then at some point went into a drain only company where you no, know, in between there I was behind the counter of a plumbing store for a while. And then went into a drain-only company where I got to run a truck myself, which was a lot of fun despite what I was doing. I was just thinking about this last night. I remember going to this house. Got to love drain work. I remember going to this house where their drain, their sewer was just backed up, but they didn't have the money to fix it. So they just kept flushing toilets, and it was coming up in the basement. They closed the basement off, and nobody was using it. The neighbors called the city, and the city was going to pay to get this drain unplugged. And I get down there, and it's just know, two and a half feet of raw sewage. In the basement? In the basement, where they just kept the door walled off. And the neighbors could smell it. Oh, my word. And I'm like, I don't even know where to begin. So they had to get a pump truck to come pump it out. And I had to break the brass plug out of the cast iron clean out in the ground. And pop, smack that thing off, and it broke, and it just spit up like a freaking... Bidet, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) I remember bailing like, I'm out. (laughs) Uh, I was under pressure. I didn't realize that was going to happen at the time. I don't know how old I was, like 19 or something. And it just came guising out of there, old faithful. And uh, I suppose your face was over top of it at that point. No, I missed. Okay. Good. Barely, probably. (laughs) But yeah, the pressure stopped and there was probably still probably put another half foot of water on there but i knew where everything was and what to do so i just had my wader boots on and i actually kept chest waders fly fishing waders in the truck went down there and got busy bro because that's what we do cutting your teeth like a true plumber man yep all good fun and you finished that job oh yeah i got him yep i got him sewer restored (laughs) good i was proud yeah walked out of there like yeah got it done took some hours (laughs) but got her done so you worked, you were working the job as a young man, 18, 19 years old there. And somewhere along the line, I believe you start questioning, is this really it? I don't know if I questioned it. I just knew, particularly in the new construction part, I knew I did not like it. When I was in the service part doing the drains and stuff, I, didn't, I got to talk to different people every day. I didn't love working in Detroit, especially getting paid cash because you're always just 
you just knew the robbery was around the corner. But we got pregnant with my oldest at some point, got with my wife, Amelia, and then we got pregnant, and then her parents were out in Las Vegas, and I've told this story before, but there was a time where her dad was calling her from time to tell her that he knocked on the window of a plumbing truck at a gas station, and if you know him, that's exactly what he did. Just, hey, how much you make last year? <laughs> Poor scared plumber. He's a big guy. Would just tell him, like, I made 60, 70, 80, $100,000 or whatever. And I didn't know it at the time, but <clears throat> I think most of those he was talking to were like union, new construction plumbers working on the strip. It probably was the city center going up at the time. Back in the early 2000s and then in 04, when she got pregnant, we fit, we just decided. Actually, she decided we're going. And I said, cool, let's roll. So we moved out there. And just so happens that the first company, or I'm sorry, the second company I interviewed at was Yes, yes Air Conditioning and Plumbing, owned by Ken Goodrich at the time. And I met my GM, the GM who ended up being my mentor, was Lance Fernandez. And Lance put a lot into me in terms of communication. I already knew, had a basic knowledge of plumbing. So he really invested in me in the communication piece. And it was with him that I went to Tom Hopkins sales boot camp in Scottsdale, Arizona for the first two, three years, probably oh five, six, and seven or something like that. And I remember getting to Scottsdale that first time and going, boy, I want to live here. I thought it was paradise. <laughs> anyway, let's keep moving on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that was quite a change of scenery from Detroit, for sure. Yeah. Vegas was a real change of scenery, but if you've been there and you see the desert in Vegas, it's just rocks and dirt. But if you go to Scottsdale and you see it, it's you can see like a 30-foot cactus, and there's just like scenery everywhere, and there's cool animals all over the place. So I remember being there like, wow, this is like paradise. And we were at the Princess Marriott Hotel and for these boot camp seminars and I spent I want to say I spent I talked my wife into financing a credit card spending like 30% of my gross income from the year before to go to this first boot camp and as the years went on this became a smaller and smaller piece of my income because I was investing in myself that way but if you ever wonder why I'm so adamant about people investing their time which is your by far your most important resource but in between calls and time off and stuff like that and stuff like waste no day that's why because it did such a big thing for me but then your money as well it's so easy to get free stuff anymore nobody wants to pay for anything but if you really want focused attention from trainers and to make yourself focus you know that saying we've had many people i think gene slade was the first one to say it on our show people who pay attention that's real. When you write that check or you bust out that debit card and you know what impact it had on your checking account, you're much more apt to take the notes and change up your presentation and get in there and really role play who you should be and you wish you were, but you're a little shy and you don't want to get up there right now, but you'll do it when you get home. So no, you get up there with the trainer and you make a fool out of yourself and you just invest. But all starts with writing that check. And in, in those early days, it was difficult. It was we didn't have extra money, but we did it. And I can't imagine who I'd be right now if I had not done that. Extra money, I think, is an exaggeration, or sorry, not an exaggeration, because if I recall, when you moved from Detroit to Las Vegas, 
that was on the back of your father-in-law paying some gas bills for you. Yeah, so that's a good part of the story that I skipped, but no, when I when we got to Vegas, we like spent every penny we had to get there and <clears throat> got there on an empty tank of gas. And we were staying with them. They had a two-bedroom condo. One was them. One was Matthew that you know who works with us here now. One of our one of our better plumbers these days. He was in the other room. And my wife, pregnant, got the couch, and I got the top bunk bed in Matthew's room. <laughs> so that Lucky was, dog. That was our life together to start. And I had a day planned out, like a couple of days after we got there, where I was going to go hit these three companies and put in applications. That's what you did back then. You just showed up to the place to put an application in back in 04. And he had to loan me gas money. He was just like, here's gas money. I was like, no, I'll pay you back. And the first place I went, I'm, I want to say they were off like 20 bucks an hour or 25 bucks an hour or something. And I think I'd made, I made less than $40,000 the whole previous year, 20, 25 an hour with no overtime. It's like 40 to 50,000 a year. And I'm like, oh bro, I'm going to kill it here. And I really liked the guy. He was like a, he was like the plumbers I grew up with. So I was ready to make an easy transition with, without leaving my comfort zone. But then I, the second company I went to and he told me about this company and said, oh, they'll teach you how to rip off old ladies and they'll teach you how to be a con artist and a salesman. And so I was closed off to it even before I got there, but I still, I had made all these directions from a map book where I knew exactly how to get to all three companies and back to the in-laws condo. Got to, yes, that was the second one and sat down in the lobby and asked Mona, who was working there at the time, it was the first person I saw for an application and she got me one and I was sitting there filling it out and out comes Lance just coincidentally and saw me and said, what's up? What are you doing? And I'm like filling out an application. And I said, I'm a plumber. And he said, is that all you want to be as a plumber? And I'm like, I remember being put off by the question. Isn't that enough? And he said, how would you like to learn how to sell? And I was like, here we go. Rolling my eyes in the back of my head. Yeah, here we go. Just like that guy said. <clears throat> and he made me an offer. And he said, if you would, if I would go to the conference room with him and let him talk about it for however many minutes, it was 10 minutes or whatever, whether I came to work for him or not, he would give me a, like a visa gift card or something. And I remember thinking, dude, I, like I hadn't even eaten. I said I wasn't hungry, but I was hungry and I had no money and I had a full tank of gas now, but once that ran out, I didn't have anything else. So I was like, yeah, man, if you, I'm game, like, but don't try to pull back on that card because it's going to get ugly. And the one thing that the first thing that I noticed was like he was dressed really nice. Like he didn't look like a GM of a plumbing and HVAC shop that I'd ever seen. Like he was wearing really nice clothes and a clean polo and just put together. And he, and I don't remember the conversation. I wish I did because I'd love to have it scripted. But he spent a few minutes talking about professional selling and what it meant to be a selling tech from a professional standpoint, not snake oil and tricking people and telling everyone that their house is going to burn down or flood if they don't do something, but being a straight pro like our people here. And I was sold, man. I was like, dude, if you can teach me how to do that and keep my principles intact and not and be able to sleep at night, like I'm game. So I went to the third place and they talked trash about that place too and then tried to offer me more per hour, but I was sold. It didn't matter what they offered me. 
And this place didn't even, yes, didn't even have an hourly rate, which was the tough part. I'm thinking of that conversation all the way home. Straight commission. (laughs) Straight commission. If you don't sell work, you don't eat. That's that. But I didn't care. Like I knew how it was going to go. Was that like a, you knew at that moment that was. I knew. I was, I knew a hundred percent. We have Brandon Hernandez, who's a SWAT team member in York. Pennsylvania here who came to work for us with his buddy John Perez who both of them have done episodes of this show and I remember them after I went and spoke at their trade school daddy Stevens here in town and I told the guys at the end like I always did I said don't come up to me after the class telling me you want to apply don't I don't want to see you you go through your instructor and if your instructor says from today on to when you graduate they were they looked good they sounded good. They were on time. They didn't come in all bedhead and gross and wrinkled shirts. If your instructor can say that about you and you ask them to put you in contact with me and they do, I'll interview you. But you've got to hold the line for that long and being a professional because when you get here, you're going to be a professional. You're not going to be here. And of course, John and Brandon came up to me right after the class. <laughs> Bro, after hearing you talk, like we just know, like we got to be there. We got to yeah. be there with you. And I'm like, I know I said not to do this, but I love these guys' energy. <laughs> They're coming to work for us. And they did. And one of them's still here and actually just made, John just made team, team leader. leader. Yep. And Brandon went from here, saved up some money, and then went to, to pursue his dream job, which was to be a police officer and then a member of the SWAT team. So they're both like killing life. I actually saw them. One's killing more than the other. Oh, how dare you? How dare you? <laughs> Let's not get political here, all right, buddy? (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Like both of you guys. Yeah, yeah. those are our boys. (laughs) But yeah, the same thing they said and the same energy they had was exactly how I felt going to Lance. I was like, this guy's awesome. I can't wait for him to mentor me. And that he did. And we spent a lot of years working side by side, me running the calls and him giving me the training after work in between calls and stuff like that. And he had a huge impact on my life. And the one story that I love, and the, probably the biggest thing that impacted me was he came out. He asked me what I wanted to do, and I said, what were my like five-year goals? I'd never heard of such a thing. That was such a completely foreign concept to me. It might as well have been another language. And I was like, to get rich. I don't know. <laughs> so back up on that a little bit. When you say that was a foreign language, why? Is that like a part of your upbringing in Detroit that you never thought past today, tomorrow? Yeah, there's no such thing. Why? I'd never even, I didn't know what a 401k was when I got there. I had never heard of such a thing. So for him to talk about what's your plan for three or five years from now or whatever, it just made no sense to me. The concept of future was your next breath. Yeah, you're just trying to survive. And at that time, and I don't know about now, probably not too much different, but in Detroit, you were just trying to live from one day to the next and have a good time, but survive. So when he asked that question, I was just like, I don't know, make money. I was like, how much money? I'm like, more. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, how much more? What are you trying to be at? What do you want your net worth to be? What do you want this? What's your blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, dude, I don't know, man. Why are you asking me all these stupid questions? And he's Brian's looking around for the HR. Am I in trouble here? What's going on? Why the pressure? So he's, what do you want? What do you want to be? five years from now what life do you want to be living and i whatever avenue we took to get there the answer was i want to do what you're doing at some point i want to he was a hvac tech turned comfort advisor turned straight sales turned gm and had equity 
And I'm like, that's what I want to do. And uh, he said, all right, if you want to do what I did, you have to do what I say. Not only will you get there, but I'll get you there in a lot less time than it took me. And I said, all right, let's do it. And he held his hand out and he said, but you got to do what I say. And I'm like, why is your hand sticking out? (laughs) You got to promise. You got to promise to do what I say. I won't make you do anything that compromises your principles, but you got to do what I say. So I shook his hand and it from there, and I don't know how long in that was, it wasn't very long in to my career there, but our relationship changed a bit. He was like angrier with me when he saw me screwing around. He was much more direct, much less patient with me being a dumb 24-year-old and making 24-year-old mistakes, but everything was like, this isn't what you want to be doing in life. This isn't what you want for your child on the way. This isn't what you want for your family. Why are you out here doing this? Like, why are you complaining about this and that and the calls? Why aren't you practicing? And he came out and heard me listening to Jim Rome, R-O-M-E, the sportscaster, in the parking lot while I was cleaning my truck out between calls. And he just, he ripped me up and down about, you really have time for this to catch up on your Michigan Wolverines sports stuff? as opposed to listening to something that's going to make you better. And I was, look, I was a punk idiot. I had ambition but and enthusiasm, but I was, I was a jerk and spiteful and angry and always lashing out on the wrong people. And I'm just like, and an excuse maker on top of it. For those listening who work here or where I'm going in the future, when you hear me call you out on making excuses and being less than what you could be, just know that I know because... It's like looking into a mirror. (laughs) I know because I'm so capable of it and did it for so long. But he would call me out and I'd just go, what am I supposed to be listening to? And he's like, something to make you better. And he ended up taking me in his office and giving me this tape that was about an hour, actually like 56 minutes of Brian Tracy's book, The Psychology of Selling. And this little piece, it's actually usually free on YouTube, called The 21... Success Secrets of Sales Superstars, I believe is what it's called. And it didn't say that. It was just like a blank tape that he had recorded over or something. And it was two sides and it was one hour long. And he said, listen to this tape. And I said, and then you'll give me another one. And he's like, yeah, I'll give you another one. But you have to listen to it a hundred (laughs) times. Oh, man. And he gave me a sticky notepad and a pen and said, put a sticky note on your dashboard, write a Roman numeral one when you've listened to it the first time. And once you get to 100, I'll give you another tape. And it was impactful. It's still probably my all-time favorite book on selling, maybe just because of the impact it had on me. But I listened to that one hour 100 times. I have no idea how long it took. I know I knew it so detailed, not just word for word, but every time his voice would change and voice inflection and a word he said, pronounced wrong like I knew every detail of that one hour tape to the point where I hated it like I despised it and I went like a decade without hearing it and then started promoting it here years later and when I would hear it then I would go oh I love this (laughs) it's funny I love this tape but yeah it was funny because like I don't know weeks in or days in or months in or whatever it was I would be on a presentation presenting some plumbing upgrades or whatever. And I would say something that didn't come from me. Like it 
came from that tape. Not necessarily like verbatim, like word for word, but that line of the line of questioning that I did or the line of the statement that I used wasn't my own. It was like something that I had learned from listening to that tape over. And I was like, whoa. And I just immediately started calling my fellow plumbers and HVAC techs like, dope, bro, this works. You got to try this. And it was funny because I brought the tape in and I brought the sticky notes in to show him that there were a hundred lines on it. And he just took the notes and just tossed it in the trash. And you look <laughs> at it like, so what? But took the tape and he opened this case that kind of looks like our Roadcaster Pro here, except I felt like it was 10 times the size. It was like the briefcase from Dumb and Dumber. And he pops this case open. It's a plastic shelled case. And it was just lines, rows and rows of tapes, all <laughs> selling related. And I'm like, I felt like there were 10,000 tapes in there. It was probably like 40 or something. But right. I'm like, you made me listen to that a hundred times and you have all these tapes. And he's just, that was the one you needed the most. Now you're ready for the rest of them. So he would say, I don't just listen to them once, but listen enough times where you really let it soak in. And I know what he means. I talk to people who I try to put on this show because it's so good for you. And I say, you need to listen to podcasts. And they go, I'm not a podcast person. I just can't listen to people talk. I can't focus on it. I can't, I tune it out. Everybody does. There's nobody alive who listens to an hour long anything and takes in every word of that. But one, as you practice, you get good. I don't care what you're practicing. Two, listen to it more than once. And each time you listen to it, you'll get something different out of it. Now, I'm not saying go for the hundo mark because you don't need to listen that many times. But listen like three times and you'll notice you took a little bit of different stuff each time you listen to it. I'm not saying every episode of this show, but whatever it is that helps you in audiobook or whatever, do it a few times. So... I did what he said, and you didn't catch me rolling up listening to music, and stand-up comedy was my thing, sometimes sports radio, sometimes news, but stand-up comedy was really what kept me from getting too negative. I liked music, too, because I'd walk in with that energy of the music I was listening to on the way. But if I was being real with myself, I had every excuse in the book for why I should be listening to music and comedy and how it helps me and calms me down and blah, 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 and excuse, excuses, and I'm, because I'm lazy. And because I like what I like and I want to be entertained, I want my ears to be tickled with entertainment. But the reality was when I was listening to Tom Hopkins selling is for dummies or selling for dummies <laughs> or how to master the art of closing or whatever. <clears throat> and I walked up to the door, man, my, I was engaged. I was way more engaged. I was thinking about how I was going to go about this in a way that if I found something that would help this client, the way I was going to present it was going to make them want it even more than if I just let the words fall out of my mouth. And therefore, I made more money listening to this kind of stuff than I did listening to music and comedy and whatever. Right? It works. It just works. You can go up and down the ratings of this show. Go look at the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Fill one out while you're there, please. Thank you. And what you'll see over and over again is life-changing, doubled my income, doubled my revenue, my closing percentage went up, my ticket averages way up, over and over again. And how many people do you think say that about, name your band, I don't know, I don't listen to music, 
Tool. It's like for, that's for me. It's Tool. Like, that's what I'm listening to, Metallica, the old 90s stuff. But how many people say that about Theo Vaughn? Like, I, I thoroughly enjoy, like, Joe Rogan. There are some shows that I think will help you, like Andy Frisella and more motivational ones like that. <clears throat> but this type of show, this show is about what you do for a living. It's for the hour and a half a week, at least make it part of your library. But then fill the rest of it with stuff like that. Andy Elliott and J-Dub, Jason Walker's podcast. Like podcasts that are talking about selling in the trades because that's what you do for a living. So for me, way more beneficial than anything. Even motivational stuff's great. But if, there isn't, if they're not talking the blueprint, they're not talking about change this, say this, do exactly this instead of what you're currently doing, it's good, but it's not as good as it could be. So you're growing up a kid in Detroit, single mom, drop out of school, take a job, hate your life, so to speak. You have every, and then move to Vegas without a penny to your name and take this job. And then somebody says, Brian, I will hold you accountable. Not in those words, but that's what that was. was. It was those words. I'm, if you want, yeah, if you want I will do this for you and you will go places. You had every reason to say, bro, I'm out. Screw this. I had every desire. So why, <laughs> why, why didn't you? I do think certain there was another guy who was with me who was part of that too, which was Brent Buckley, who just was part of the building and selling of Fetch Attack, and he's a multimillionaire now and was probably making a million dollars a year in commission before that even happened. And we came from pretty different backgrounds, Brent and me, but we both had one thing in common, which was we really wanted more, really wanted more for ourselves and for our next generation than what we were used to. But I'll say a little bit different between me and him was like, I probably did and probably still do crave, probably always will crave that father figure to be mentored by and learn from and impress, I guess. I still desired for Lance to be proud of me in some way. I never thought about it or said that out loud. But looking back, I can see it. And even looking at me now, I can still feel that I have that in me, that I do that, probably always will. It's like my dad lived 15, 20 minutes away from me growing up, and I only met him once on accident. Like We just lived in the same city and raised another family while we were struggling and eating macaroni and hot dogs for dinner night after night. And this, love this guy. We should have a conversation one day, Dad. <laughs> Got a lot to talk about. Yeah, so I, I think that my brother and I had... we. We're twins, so we had each other, and we did a lot of those things for each other. We certainly held each other accountable to certain things that we would never do, despite the fact that we were hanging out with the gangs in Detroit. One of the big ones was a tattoo. If either one of us is ever going to get a tattoo, we both have to agree on it first. And guess what? <laughs> we have yet to agree on a tattoo for each other. So <laughs> it's just not happened, and it's not looking good at 40, be 44 in a couple weeks here. There's not... 44 in a few days here. It's not looking good for that to ever happen. And there were other things where we just held each other accountable. So in some ways we had father figures in each other, but we both desired to have that mentor in our lives that 
it made us proud to impress him and it made us feel bad to disappoint him. So I think Lance became that for a time and I really wanted him to be proud of me. Also, I had my wife at home who I determined early that I didn't want her to work once she was pregnant. I really wanted her to raise our child, be home with the kid. So you take that motivation, you run with it, and you start getting some success. So Lance is training you, you're holding yourself accountable, you have other people like Brent and your crew that you've mentioned in previous podcasts before that are starting to work you and mold you and shape you in the ways that are making you better. You already learned a lot of the plumbing skill in Michigan, now you're learning the presentation side of things and you're starting to get that success. What did that look like for you as you progressed? Did you find yourself checking against your own pride and stepping all over yourself? Did you have a slow and methodic rise or what was that journey? No, I had a, that's tough, man. If you look back now, it seems pretty mediocre. But if you look at the fact that I doubled my income in one year, you can't really do that and not feel like a massive sense of accomplishment. Sure. And then probably over the next two, I doubled it again or close to it. But even like when you're starting at 30, Looking, it's not incredibly difficult to do. Like even sixty thousand in two thousand five in in Vegas, it's not a lot of money. It's not getting you real far, but it was a huge accomplishment. So, yeah, pride pride was there. Still, imposter syndrome was pretty prevalent. That's something that's really not gotten out of me until here recently. I still get, I would say, plagued by it from time to time. Where everyone's going to realize you're not that good. Like you're just this punk from Detroit with a with no high school diploma. Like it's obviously gonna come crashing down. Not nearly as much anymore, but it's always been there for me. I think it'll always be there in some way. <clears throat> but one thing I did have was an opiate addiction that I took with me that really made a glass ceiling for me and kept me from getting too great and doing too many big things where I needed to put in that little bit of extra work or mindset or thought power and instead i shifted that toward getting some oxys in me and that was something that was always holding me back so where did that come from so in 01 i blew my knee out playing (laughs) flag (coughs) playing football (laughs) playing flag football three years before we moved to vegas And I got, there was no opioid epidemic in 2001. Nobody had heard of such a thing, but there were opiates. And I had a doctor who put me on the opiates for several months. I got the orthoscopic surgery, which was just a camera put in there, and they found what was wrong. Everything was just torn up, and I had to have MCL and ACL replaced. And then kept me on it for a while after that after the main surgery and then I was just walking backwards and trashed it again walking backwards like tossing a football and stepped in a little hole while I was healing and I trashed it again I had to get it fixed so it ended up being 11 months that I was on opiate painkillers and they just kept raising that I would go in and say it's just it hurts through it after I don't know every few weeks or a couple months or whatever because that stuff has a diminishing return And little did I know, although I probably knew it and was just hiding it or putting it out of my head, I was getting more and more addicted to it 
as I stayed on it, <clears throat> but they kept me on it for 11 months. And then I went into the pharmacy and these pricks at this doctor. Oh, oh man, get a hold of these people. I, I kept going to the same pharmacy and uh, this little Asian lady was just like, they keep giving you this script of whatever it was, like 30 or 60 of them. And I said, uh-huh. I was like, and she goes, are they charging you for office visits? I said, yep, I got to pay a hundred bucks on top of my insurance every time I go. And she said, yeah, they're ripping you off. They should be giving you, if you need them, they should be giving you like 180 with a refill. They're just ripping you off. She says, what do you do when you get in there? I said, I get in there, I sit down. He touches my leg twice. He asks me if it still hurts. I say, yes, he gives me a new script and sends me on my way and I'll see him in a month. And she said, yeah, they're just milking you. So she called the office with me standing there and said, from here on out, she wants to see she wants to see that they're giving me a real script and not making me go back to this office for a hundred dollars every time. The next time I went in, I got Tylenol three. <laughs> they just <laughs> shut it down. And I didn't know what withdrawals were at the time, but I found out real quick as I started going through withdrawals. And I had a buddy, not gonna name any names, who just heard that I was going through it and went to somebody we know and came back with a gallon sized Ziploc bag full of my medicine, if you will. And that thing lasted a long time. And then I just found ways to get it pretty easily. And then when we moved to Vegas, there was part of me that was like, oh, cool. So I'll finally get off these pills. And the funny thing about opiate addiction is the knee hurt really bad all the time. I wasn't on them. And it, it is funny because when I actually got into rehab, I'd say within a month of being off them, my knee didn't hurt anymore. <laughs> there was zero pain there. Like a little bit of odd pain when I did certain things, but the daily just it aches all the time. That was psychological, if not brought on by the opiates. So that was funny. That early I noticed that. But moving to Vegas, it was, I thought I had enough to get by for a few weeks or whatever, and then I was just going to be off them. It was going to be like magic. Wow, it was like days before I found a new connection there. It was actually a lot easier to get than it was in Michigan. So found my new way to get it there and was put in touch with a doctor who just wrote scripts at will. And again, you pay a hundred dollars, although this was cash and they didn't take insurance and they just wrote you a big script and had that for years, man. And at about whatever year it was, I, I kept really hard trying to get off of it and going through withdrawals and took significant time off work. And my wife was just fine enough's enough and talked to my mom and my stepdad who my stepdad had actually gone through a program here in Pennsylvania called the Teen Challenge Training Center. It's adult, but it was started for teens. I went through that program. Sorry, he went through that program and overcame a crack addiction and just done. He's never had an issue since. And that was decades ago. <clears throat> so my wife got a hold of my mom and set it up where I was going out and going through this program and left yes and left my mentor and left my family there in Vegas, my wife and at the time two kids and flew out to Pennsylvania and went started going through this 14-month program. And I was going to go through four months of this 14-month program and just call it good. But my wife came to see me at my four-month graduation and said she was so blown away by who I had become in that four months, she decided to move the kids and herself into my mom's basement of her townhouse and and make me go through the other 10 months and 
see what happened on the other side. So that's what I did. And uh, after 10 months in that part of the program, which was 14 total months where I would see them once a week and had two 15 minute phone calls with them the rest of the week, I got out and immediately came to this company. Wow. That's, that's an incredible journey and not just for you, but for your family. I'm trying to put myself in that place where my spouse is 3000 miles away and going through a program and I'm here with the kids, like trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do. I can only imagine that uh, there was a significant amount of healing to be done in your family and the relationships through all of that and what the opiates had caused and what you had allowed to come in to interfere with things. Yeah, there was some rebuilding and healing and a lot of trust to rebuild and addiction's no joke. It's easy to talk through what several years in opiate addiction look like and just gloss over how destructive it is, but it takes a significant toll on you as a person and on those close to you. And that wasn't, that wouldn't be my only bout with addiction before we're sitting here now having this conversation. So you start with basically nothing in Michigan and then you start over again in Las Vegas and then you start over again in Pennsylvania. You get out of the program. I'm assuming you probably have very little to your name. Your wife and family are in your mom's house, which means that now you're in your mom's house and trying to find a job basement in the basement not house basement Basement. (laughs) so what does that look like you coming out of the program saying i guess i gotta get work did you think about switching industries and going into something else or was it always going to be the trades no i had a lot of things i wanted to do but one thing that i could do quickly and make a lot of money really fast and that was jumping into the driver's seat of a plumbing truck and hitting some maintenance calls and that's what I had the opportunity to do. Matt Buckwalter and Larry and Scott Rohrer hired me pretty quickly, and I had a, already had a pedigree of working under Ken Goodrich, and going through that program was actually a, kind of a plus for this place because of some of the things that I did in there. And, uh, yeah, so everybody was willing to roll the dice and give me that chance. I didn't have any felonies, <laughs> any real criminal history just some kind of minor things, but nothing that would exclude me from working at a place like this. Came out on fire, never had a problem with work ethic, never had a problem with enthusiasm, and hit the ground running in in that way. If I'm thinking this is circa 2012, take a job here, work in plumbing, uh, resetting literally everything in your life and starting over. And what happens next? when you get involved in a company that already has established plumbers and processes and all that, and they're doing their way of business and you come in this guy, this hotshot from Las Vegas who happens to have screwed up his life and starting over, what do you do? I try to keep my head down, just be quiet (laughs) and unknown and let the process play out. And, but I was actually introduced as like a guru on selling and literally my introduction was in if you want help with your presentations ask and I'm just like, oh, please don't <laughs> nice. do this to me because i despite being a podcast host and being active on social media i don't like that much attention but i am good at what i'm good at i'm good at taking technicians and teaching them how to make more money i'm good at taking kids from circumstances like mine giving them a shot and giving them real guidance and 
bumpers on their bowling lane and like the here walk this path strictly walk this path and here's what you will find at the other end of it once i got established myself a little bit and started teaching other guys there were very few techs here at the time who wanted to get better very few you were here at the time you know what i'm talking about most of them were super comfortable and wanted to stay super comfortable weren't looking to grow or develop but the few who were would come to me and just say how do you do the numbers you do with i had i believe i had the highest or second highest what was it Uh, yes yeah net promoter score yeah highest or second highest net promoter score in the company which is a metric that it's still used in some places. I think it's diluted its way into just everybody asks the same question, but basically it's a survey that says on a scale of zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend me, our company to your friends or family? A 10 and a nine are committed or considered a promoter, meaning they're fans. They're actually going to go talk to their family about how great this was. A seven and eight are a neutral, meaning that, I mean, they may bring it up, but it's going to be passively or reactively. And then anything six and below is called a negative or a detractor. They, those are people who are going to actively tell other people about a poor experience. And from that place in our timeline, we were using NPS and that was an internal survey that was provided to our clients and they would actually have to fill out a postcard and send it back in and all that. And everybody was shooting for a level 10 service, or at least that was the aim. But Brian took it to a new level in terms of actually securing that. Yeah, so I was... First or second highest in the company with net promoter while at the same time doing as much revenue as most of the time three, the next three, two to three plumbers combined. And I had a, got a lot of attention in those first couple months, mostly negative attention. People saying I was out ripping customers off, but obviously, because anytime you're, you come in as number one, that's what you're going to get. But some people who just were actively questioning, how do I do that? Oftentimes it would be HVAC techs and electricians who were on a job with me and saw me do what I do and were like, whoa, wait a minute, that's not what I had heard that you do. Because what I did was take probably too much time building a great relationship with the client and just making real offers based on what they had either directly or indirectly told me about what they do or don't enjoy about their plumbing system. So I would make recommendations based off that. I used, no, it's not a sales training episode, but at the time I used Tom Hopkins needs formula, N-E-A-D-S, needs. What do they have now? What do they enjoy about what they have now? What would they alter if they could? Who's the decision maker or makers? And what is the solution? The needs formula. And I'd heard that and written it down and studied it and practiced it so many times, man. I was gone for 14 months. And I remember right when I got back in my truck, took the sticky notepad out. I had sticky notes all over my truck in Vegas. And the first thing I wrote, bam, needs, N-E-A-D-S, got to get back to this because that was the one thing that just stuck. They would see me do that and I would talk a little bit about the needs formula and how I did what I did. And the few people who really wanted to grow and get better, who would spend time with me role playing and stuff would be very vocal about how much I helped their presentation. And it didn't catch the attention in a positive way of most of the very comfortable techs who worked here at the time. Almost none of them are still here. But it did catch the attention of the owners. And they liked what they heard, obviously. So I got in a truck in September of 2012. And then in November of 2013, I was asked to take over the plumbing department. 
All right. So things are finally starting to look up for you a little bit. You're having some renewed success. Now you're looking at promotion and opportunities within the role or within the business, I should say. So stepping into that, this is now your first journey stepping into leadership. Previous to this, I don't understand that you had any a type of official capacity of managerial oversight or supervisor roles. And so this is your first foray into the world of leading. Is that right? That's correct. But it, oddly enough, like the whole team that existed, all, most of the plumbing team and a lot of the HVAC team at Yes in Vegas had become people that I had sought out or organically yeah i was always like trying to bring in the right people around me just naturally and had people who just wanted to do what i was doing so officially yes my first role in leadership but i was always i was always just felt pushed that way or led that way so what was it like taking over the team when according to you a lot of the team wasn't really raging fans yeah so we had i want to say eight techs and uh, quickly made the decision and got permission from the owners that if I was going to teach most of these techs how to. So here's something that I noticed all the time. I'd come in between calls, come in to get material for a job I sold. I'd walk down to the basement where the plumbing training room was, where we had these plastic envelopes with, if they needed something from me or had an envelope for me or whatever, it'd be in that. I'd walk into that room to grab an envelope out or whatever. And I would see two plumbers at one forty-five in the afternoon, just sitting there talking. And I'd be like, Oh my gosh, are we that slow? You're like, you guys don't have work. And they're like, no nah, man, you gotta look, you get on a call after one, you just got to stay on that call till two, two thirty, And then they won't put anything else on you. But if you clear a call at one thirty, two o'clock, you're getting another call, my man. <laughs> and I remember just standing dumbfounded standing there, dude, Larry Rohrer, who was the owner at the time, is so good to these techs, so generous. He's so giving. He's a mentor. Like he, he'll invest in you if you want. And they were just so cool to, they all considered themselves and talked about themselves like they're great people and they care so much about the company and their client. Like they wouldn't take my mentorship because they care so much about their client. It's all about the client. <laughs> Meanwhile, they're letting unknown number of people sit without water because they're trying to not get a call after two. Like, this is the type of people they were. And believe me, when you get these people shellacking you on online for talking about selling and they start talking about how they care so much about their client, total BS. I know all these guys. This ain't them at all. They love to put this facade on, but they're not great people. Ask them when's the last time they talked to a client to start with. But they would. They had this move, man, and they're like, and their hourly was so high. So, you know, here we had a, commission versus hourly where you got whatever was more at the end of two weeks and their hourly rates were so high they didn't care about their commission it didn't mean anything like they just got their hourly anyway so they would just sit downstairs and nobody was looking at the gps unfortunately and they would just milk the clock and the dispatcher didn't know where they were and uh, they would finally get done at 2 30 and then just clock out and go home and the on-call guy would have all the calls he could hit and that was that. So when I took over, I got the owners at the time together and said, here's some move I'm going to have to make. I'm going to have to bring everybody's hourly rate down to $25 an hour. And that's the max that we pay here. Still is. And if they want to make it, they're going to, if they want to make more, they're going to have to make it in their new comp, in their commission. So 
they gave me permission and I think five of the eight were gone within 60 days, which is what I wanted. To be perfectly honest, I want six of them gone, but one of them sold me on what a great asset he was going to be and actually is a phenomenal asset to this team now. I won't name any names. Stop looking at me like that. (laughs) (laughs) So you rebuild the team, and it wouldn't be the last time that the team gets cycled over, but each time you did it to the improvement and betterment of the entire company. And that's one of the, I think, unique things about you, Brian, is you have a way of taking what was already there, was already pretty good, and then finding the next iteration of it that's even better. And one of the things that I think you take pleasure and joy in is the building of teams and specifically the building up of those individuals that compose the team. And so over the years, you've had a lot of interactions with guys like John and Brandon straight out of trade school or other people that came in as shop techs or parts runners or whatever, and bringing them up as apprentices. And you take a lot of fulfillment and joy out of seeing somebody grow not only in their technical skills, but specifically in their leadership, their their life, you know, who they are as a man and what they're doing. So speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I do. From a team perspective, I consider myself a, probably a gardener of some sort. Like a, My job is to pull weeds and then to fertilize good stuff. If we just want a yard full of lush green grass. My job is to get out there and water and fertilize the grass, but it's also my job to go out there and pull the crab grass and the dandelions out and chuck them in the, our competitor's building. (laughs) (laughs) And I have no problem doing that whatsoever. There are certain things that are going to tell me quickly that you aren't meant to be part of this team. And fortunately for those people, most of the time also that you're going to be happier somewhere else. So it doesn't, it bothers me to do to just yank someone out and toss them away. But at the same time, over these years, I've seen that you're going to be much happier at a place that's more suited to your personality. And here, your personality needs to be higher energy, hunger, desire to be better. You come in with what I do, which is fist bump everybody I see. Before COVID, it was like the half hug, the bro hug, they call it or whatever. And just be excited to be here and be excited for what the day is going to hold and be excited for either the money you made yesterday or the impact you had on client lives yesterday or the lessons that you learned in a miserable day yesterday. But the sun is coming up this morning and you have the opportunity for everything to be much better. So that's what we walk in. That's how we conduct ourselves at any organization I'm a part of. And for the team's sake, if you're someone who's not like that, you're going to get pulled and you're just going to get sent on your way to somewhere more fitting your personality. And hopefully you figure that out and come back. But if not, is what it is. On a personal level, and most of it, it seems like the same type of thing, but on a personal one-on-one level with these techs, the men and women who work here and who I invest in, it really feels more to me like, don't do that, man. I did that. And you're just going to wreck your life. You're going to wreck your life. You're not going to enjoy it in the long run. It's a lot of like, certainly when you came up the way I did and you introduced like substances, alcohol and drugs and stuff like that, it gets 10 times worse. But even without that, we have this, if you're raised in a, with a great family and taught how you're supposed to act and taught the way you're supposed to be with a, with a father around, hopefully, 
you look at things in a long-term perspective and you see the moves you need to make now to be where you want to be in five years, 10 years, 50 years, the next generation, your kids, your grandkids. I can talk like that, but certainly in the early days, I did not act like that. I didn't think like that. It was all immediate what makes me happy right here, right now. And that is just how you walk through life raised the way, raised the way I was raised. My mom is not that type of person and did her best to raise me and my brother another way. But I don't know. There, there was just a missing piece that in that father figure that just, we weren't like that. We were always trying to be. I'm always grabbing young men and women now and saying, and I'm very forceful with it. I'm not saying, I, I think that you would just be, you should do, I'm just like, don't freaking do that. That's an idiot move. That is a move that you're going to do if you want to end up here two years from now. And that's not where you want to go this way. Do this. Trust me on this one. Just do it. Or I can easily tell a story of how I went that way. And 2020 being a dark year for me, the year before we started the podcast was I went back into addiction and alcohol. I was five years clean from opiates and decided to casually start drinking again. And that worked out for a few years. And then next thing I know, I was a full-blown, up to a fifth, up to a handle of Tito's vodka a day, just bent alcoholic, like really killing myself through most of 2020. And that was a whole other, I had called to re-enroll myself in the program that I went through before and through some circumstances, didn't end up doing it and actually ended up somewhat autonomously or get, getting clean by myself. Although I was, I did go to a therapist <clears throat> who had experience with that and was seeing him twice a week for a steep amount for an entire year. And then after that first year, brought it down to once a week. I'm still seeing him every week now, but yeah, didn't go through the program just ended up beating it by myself through circumstances where I'm just like, I don't want to be this person anymore. It's either I'm going to get clean or I'm just going to just not be here anymore. Oh, wow. What a, what a moment of your life where you're circling back around to the things that you knew. Was there an element of fear that, that there's a saying out there, once an addict, always an addict. Was there an element of fear that this would be something that you couldn't get free of? No, I didn't really have that because what the fear was is every time I tried to stop drinking at that time, I started going through deliriums, tremens, DTs, they call alcohol withdrawal, where you actually start having like many seizures and like real health consequences. That scared me because every time I stopped drinking, I started shaking a lot. Actually got asked about it a lot. Also got asked why I was eating cough drops like candy all the time. I clear my throat a lot. So it wasn't that big of like brutal allergies most of the year in Pennsylvania. So it wasn't a huge stretch, but still I was on cough drops like all the time. And it was just covering up that Tito's smell. But I didn't have that issue because for the first five years that I didn't drink or do anything, I didn't really want to. But I started having this feeling like I was just missing out because we'd be on these cruises or we'd be out at the country clubs and on on team trips and on vacation and people were having a cocktail or an IPA and I just I felt like I was missing out I stayed I I knew all the time that I needed to stop and get done with it like I knew 
And I knew once I was off of it, I would stay off of it somehow, which I did. But I could not make myself walk through that door. So I was going to go back in. <clears throat> and, yeah, a, a trip with my two youngest daughters up to a cabin with a buddy and his daughters and his buddy and his daughters. We stayed overnight and did some stuff you do at a cabin, shot some guns, had a bonfire, roasted marshmallows with the girls. And the guys and I stayed up drinking after the girls went to sleep and watching like college football sports center or whatever. And they went to sleep. And then I just stayed up like taking shots by myself, just boom, one after another, probably for another two hours until I was finally drunk enough to just fall asleep, which was pretty much my evening ritual. And the next morning, like, they had whiskey. I drink clear stuff. I was a vodka guy, and they had whiskey. So I was driving back, and the girls were playing in the third row and just giggling and stuff. And I was just like, I didn't yell at them, but I was like, girls, can you, can we keep it down a little bit? Daddy has a headache. And they're just like, oh, yeah, sorry, whatever, no big deal. And they just went back to playing. But for some reason, man, I saw myself in the rearview mirror when I said that, and I just pulled over into a gas station and just, said I'd be right back and left it running and locked the door with the remote and ran into the bathroom and just started bawling my eyes out. I was looking in the rearview mirror and I was thinking, you just, I didn't know my dad. So I had made all these agreements and contracts with myself that of the type of father I was going to be if I had the chance, not this POS scumbag who lived 30 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever away from us and never saw us. But like I was going to be part of my kids' lives. And even through all that, like I never missed one of my son's wrestling matches or football game or soccer matches, whatever you call that soccer crap. Never missed one of those things. But still, I just told my toddler daughters that they needed to be quieter while they're back there having a blast because daddy drank so much his head hurt. And for whatever reason, I'd done some horrible stuff and had gone way off track of who I wanted to be but for whatever reason that was the thing that broke me and I just said I'd never have another drink and I came home told my wife I was never gonna have another drink and uh, took I don't know if this was like Sunday I think I had to take Monday off maybe Tuesday call in sick so I could overcome the withdrawals and overcame the withdrawals and it was brutal but it just happened and I knew it would be over and uh, came back the next day ready to go. It's hard for somebody who hasn't lived that experience to understand everything that goes through it and into it. And yet I suspect that some of our listeners are probably dealing with that same type of journey themselves right now. So if you have words of wisdom about how it was impacting you and what you would say to them if they were sitting in front of you right now, what would that sound like? They, quote unquote, don't want to hear it. You're either on a mission of recovery or not. And there are a lot of people out there who can just very casually drink or whatever, and, or even some different forms of drugs and stuff very casually. It doesn't have a big impact on them. I know most addiction medicine specialists would say that addiction is defined by its consequences. So if you're someone who can drink every couple weekends and have no consequences and you don't have an addiction problem, but I know a lot of people who are profoundly affected by the amount of alcohol they consume. And it's not just alcohol. Like it, it's, it can also be caffeine. People don't understand how destructive caffeine can be when it's consumed in large amounts. You no longer get a pickup from it 
but you're irritable all day and you just think there are just reasons all around you to be upset. You're an addict. You're drinking like three rock star energy drinks a day or monsters or whatever. And you're, you just have reasons to be upset all the time. The amount of that nonsense that you're drinking is actually impacting you emotionally. It's just, it just is. Don't take my word for it. What do I know? I'm just a plumber. Look it up, research it, see if it's true. Ask those close to you or say, I'm not going to do it for 90 days and see how, see how much you fight yourself internally. All the excuses you make for why you need to drink and you need energy drinks and caffeine and you need all these outside sources of weed or CBD or whatever it is to make you feel whole. It's such a part of you. You can't imagine letting it go. That's just addiction. And I would say, like I say to people here all the time, knock it the F off. You don't need it. It needs you. You don't need it. Especially if I know you, I'm like, you're too good of a person for this. To be enslaved to this type of thing. And I would also say that I was so emotional and negative at the time when I finally quit. If you had offered me to go back six weeks later, it would it's like a joke. And then every month after that for a solid year, I noticed myself getting more crisp, getting my intellect coming back and me being quicker on the draw with my wit, but also positive much more, just more, much happier and optimistic. My gratitude coming back, which has been such a huge source of my accomplishments and what I've become in my life because I'm a, I'm, I forced myself to be a very grateful person to the point where I am a grateful person because it's not natural to us. We're not walking around saying, here's a reason I should be grateful. Naturally, we walk around saying, darn right, I get this. I deserve it. And frankly, I deserve more and you're not giving me enough. And that's, no way to live because you're not going very far like that. Or maybe you are because you happen to be really good at something, but people don't re- really want to be around you. They're around you for what they can get out of you versus how you make them feel. Some people want to be that, but I'm not one of them. So you break free of the addiction, turn your attention back to the team, turn your attention to influencing people for the good. And in many ways, Brian, I've viewed you for a long time as a culture builder, somebody who not just defines culture, but shapes it, moves it, molds it where you want it to go. As we're wrapping things up here, speak to what that has meant in your journey through all the things that have impacted you through that father wound, through the addiction, through the reset, through the opportunities afforded to you, the accountability that you accepted and then somewhat walked away from and came back. Now you have the opportunity and have had the opportunity and are continuing to have the opportunity to build teams, to build people, to influence culture. What is your perspective through all the years of those experiences to now say, this is where we're going? Oh man, I don't need what? <laughs> Sorry. I was texting. What is that? <laughs> um, it's been like, a, not to be too cheesy, cliche but it's been like a process of pressure turning a coal into a diamond I feel like and not saying I'm a diamond but me internally what I feel like is like all these crappy things I've been through as a kid and then teenager and then after that I feel like I I didn't go through a lot I feel like more along the lines of all the things I put myself through after that because that's what it became almost like the 
Bible verse of the dog returning to its vomit. The addiction and things that I did and went through and put my family through were things that, like, I just have to keep coming back to that chaos and that negativity. Finding that investing in people and giving other people the things that I didn't have and helping them guide them along that path like a mentor did for me. And now, at this point in my life, so many mentors have for me, none more impactful certainly than Lance Fernandez and then Ken Goodrich at that time. And in this more recent time, people like yourself, Nate Minnick, Matt Buckwalter, Aaron Buckwalter, and Mike Vavrick, who's on our leadership team here. And then people who even work for me here, like Brennan Mockamer, who's our operations manager in plumbing, and Ryan Veyu, who's our operations manager in HVAC here. So many other people have invested in me. And for you hate to be given something, even if it's advice and even if it's compliments. Like you don't, or at least me, I don't want that. I'm like, Ugh, whatever. I want to build the show and I want to build a brand and I want to be successful. But at the same time, I'm like, eh, back off with the compliments, would you? But you don't know what it's doing for you. And it's really building you into something and giving you confidence and a, an identity that I was never really able to have. And now I know that doing that for other people, like reciprocating that, fills those voids in myself of I don't need to return to my vomit or my mess, as we called it in rehab. I I need to reciprocate the good things that have happened to me, and it fills me way more over the top and overflowing with whatever it is that you try to fill with, like drugs and alcohol and all the other vices that come along with it. So paying it forward and reciprocating good and being a grateful person and really not like grateful, hey, thanks to the guy at the counter, but really showing genuine gratitude to people when either when they deserve it or not. Sometimes you just know somebody needs some encouragement or a kind word and like giving that to them. I would say much more than anything I've acquired or will acquire, that kind of thing fills me up. It makes me whole. It makes me feel like I'm not missing anything. So I've really invested in just becoming that person. So it's it keeps, you know, how it is, bro. We get all the reason in the world all the time to go at people online and get into these squabbles and arguments. But then at the same time, there's enough people messaging me for help with their business or with their career or with their presentation that if I choose to just click on one of those and don't be some freaking know-it-all that's always online ready to correct everybody these freaking people always online ready to correct someone and show you what's up and like all that because i have it in me 100 percent. a lot of times it feels like that would feel better than actually helping someone but it's just whatever it is not good but if i can just dive into helping someone with their business or with their presentation or with their career then I get that void filled. And all of a sudden, I don't have any instinct whatsoever to jump online and go back and forth with somebody. It just goes away. It's just gone. So that's, I think everything culminates to that. To, I'll continue to grow and I'll continue to develop and I'll continue to become more and more successful, both financial, obviously, hopefully, and as a person and spiritually and as a man and as a husband and father and all and in all the other ways that that I've like gaps that I've left in addiction and stuff 
but all those places will still grow and develop, but it will come to pass by helping other people grow and develop. I said that quote of Zig Ziglar for decades now. You can have everything you want in life if you just help enough other people get what they want, but it's just, it gets more real and more real every single year. This has been an incredible story, Brian, and your journey has certainly not been an easy one, but is filled with messages of hope. And over the last several years, you've impacted many people for the good, myself included, and are still doing that in so many ways, this podcast being one of them. As we bring things in for a landing here, if people are interested in learning more about you, your story, or even just trying to get some of that hope or the boost of a line here or an advice piece here, where's a great place to find you? On the Waste No MF Day podcast, baby. You know where to find me once a week. What's up? Still going. And uh, it's ours now. Yeah. Yeah, we got us We got us our own podcast. Yes, hit, find me on Facebook and hit me on Messenger. I don't, I'm trying to scale back on the phone a little bit. The place I'm going is going to be a little bit smaller of a team to start with. So I'll have a lot less people reporting to me and uh, beating the phone up all day and all night. So my family's looking forward to scaling it back a little bit for a while. But when I open Facebook Messenger... I'll answer every text that I get, like I always do at some point, and I will engage with every person who texts me. Nice. Love it. Brian, as I mentioned, your story does have a lot of elements of hope in it. As we're taking things out here, leave us with that message of hope for the people listening, whether they're in the truck right now saying, oh man, I don't know if I can keep going on with this, whether they're struggling with stuff at home, an addiction or something like that, whether they're feeling like they've been running really hard for a while and getting a little tired of it. What is the message to carry us through? You got to send me these things beforehand, bro. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I feel like everyone, everyone listening and everyone struggling has been at, for the most part, you've been at a lower place. Maybe you're at rock bottom right now. That's a place of great hope for me. If you're at rock bottom, like that's the place I've been twice in my life where I really made significant final actual change but if you're not at rock bottom you know how much worse it can be and you know how much better it can be so all you got to do is keep moving forward literally keep putting one foot in front of the other one especially if you're like when you're in like a selling career of some kind where you affect your own income or you're building your own business like the upside is huge now if you're in a straight hourly role where not only is there no way to affect your income, there's nothing to sell, but there's also no ladder to climb. I don't know what to tell you. I really don't. Because for me, that has to be there. And I've worked diligently since I got here to make sure that, if possible, every role in this organization has some either some way to make more money by selling something or a ladder in front of you that some are tougher to climb than others and some are filled with rugged wood that have splinters but you got to still figure out how to climb it but there's a place to go there's a step up from where you're at now and all you got to do is push hard enough develop enough to take that step so if you have one of those things in front of you that's all you need like as long as you have a reason to get there like family goals your future all you need is like a place to go. 
But man, if you're in some dead end job with no commission and no ladder in front of you, I don't know what to tell you. Get out, <laughs> jump. Brian, from, from my seat and from many of the people listening to this podcast, thank you for sharing not only your story, but everything that you do week in and week out to make this podcast and everything that goes with it happen. We appreciate you and appreciate you sharing your story today. Appreciate you interviewing me, buddy. We've had, uh, we've had many people text and say that they would like to do the how did, you know, from the hints I've dropped, it was always like, we want to know how you went from not graduating a Detroit public high school to vice president of sales for a business that's pushing for $40 million this year. There it is. There it is. That's how. There it is. Hey, that's a wrap for this podcast. We hope that you enjoyed hearing Brian's story, one of the behind the scenes episodes that we've done here. And it's always good to hear from Brian, but specifically good to hear about his successes, his failures, and his journey along the way. And I hope this was encouraging to you, not only from an aspect of the things that Brian has overcome, but also for the things that Brian continues to preach now that he's on the other side of so many things about you can do it, you can go there, you can rise through things, you can overcome things, you can become a better person. And really, that's that's one of the reasons that we are doing this. So we want to leave you now with our weekly challenge, which means a little bit more at the end of this episode to choose to wake up every single morning and waste no day.